0: Rumpole and the Penge Bungalow Murders by John Mortimer, adapted by Richard Stoneman, starring me, Timothy West as the elder Horace Rumpole, and Benedict Cumberbatch as the younger Horace Rumpole. Part two, alone and without a leader. Looking back down the long corridor of history to my early days as a white wig and my finest hour in court, I have come to the conclusion that life is just a game of chance. By what ill fortune was there a Luger pistol with a magazine full of bullets available in the pinch bungalow on the night that young Simon Gerald had a quarrel with his father? If Daisy Sampson hadn't danced away from me in the inner temple hall... Might I have so impressed Hilda that she'd recommend me to her father? And if he hadn't been called away to the Court of Appeal, would I ever have been able to cross-examine the great forensic oracle, Dr. Percival Fillimore? Dr. Fillimore, death after being shot through the heart isn't necessarily instantaneous, is it? You've written about victims who've walked several yards. That is so, yes. Yes. Might the witness be given the photograph of the room with the deceased in the armchair? You see the dead man on the left of the fireplace. Behind him is an open door that leads to a short hallway and the front door of the bungalow. I see that, thank you. Is there not a bloodstain which, we are all agreed, is of the same group as the deceased's blood on the wall of the hallway? Um... Yes. So is it not possible that he may have been shot, got up from his chair, and moved at least that distance into the hallway? Well, yes. Yes, that is possible. I had him there. He could hardly refute my suggestions, which were, I had to confess, quite brilliant. Or might it be possible that he was in the hall, opened the door to someone who shot him, so that he bled in the hallway and returned to his chair to die? I couldn't rule out that possibility either. Dr. Fillimore, you've made a study of the path of bullets in a body. So can you confirm that if the gun were held higher than the wound and shot downwards, there would be a downward trajectory? Obviously. But if the assailant and the victim were both standing at about the same height, the trajectory would be strict as it is in this case. That is what I found, yes. Can we therefore rule out the theory that the assailant here was standing and shooting downwards at a man seated in the chair? I think we can, yes. So, when the prosecution suggested that my client stood over his father and shot him in the heart as he sat, it couldn't have happened like that, could it? No, I don't think it could. Thank you, Dr. Philmore. My lord, your lordship asked that the witness, Mr Wardle, might be here this morning in case we had any questions. In case your learned leader had any questions. And in my leader's absence, I am asking to put a question to Mr Wardle. Uh, I don't suppose you can object to that, Mr Proudfoot. Unhappily for the judge, the prosecutor couldn't. No objections, my lord. And the chubby and cherubic ex-pilot officer, now double-glazing salesman... Re-entered the witness box. Mr Wardle, you told us yesterday that you saw Simon Gerald pick up the Luger pistol and talk about killing... Yes, I promise you I'll kill the first of you that touches me. I I am much obliged for your help, my lord. Now, Mr Wardle, Simon Gerald will say that the magazine with the bullets in it was kept separate from the gun. Did you see Simon load the magazine into the pistol? Before the witness could answer, there was a small disturbance. The door swung open and Hilda's daddy returned to court. Seeing me on my feet, he gave me a look of something like horror. No, I I can't say I didn't. He heard Mr Wardle admit that he hadn't seen Simon loading the pistol. So, for all you know, Simon may have been holding an unloaded gun when he made those threats. Well, I suppose so, yes. (laughs) I gave you strict instructions not to ask any questions. I thought of one or two points that might help us.
1: Oh, jolly well done, Rumpole. He scored a couple of direct hits in his cross-examination, Daddy.
0: That's as maybe. <clears throat> I fear your lunch will have to wait, Mr. Whiston. Our client requires an urgent word. Really? About what? <laughs> I want Mr. Rumpole to do my case. But Mr. Rumpole is doing your case. He's taking a careful note and is a very important part of your defence team. But I don't want you on my defence team. I only want Mr. Rumpole. That's quite
2: out of the question. But you just sat there, like a pudding. A pudding? Did he say pudding? The young man's not quite himself. I am quite myself, thanks to Mr. Rumpole. He wanted you to ask about the magazine. And what did you do? Sat there, like a pudding. Like a pudding? Again. And who got the doctor to admit I couldn't have shot Dad in the way they said
0: when you were away on other business? Mr Rumpole. Well, it's clear, Mr Goff, that our client has lost faith in his appointed counsel. He must realise I can't continue to represent him if he has no confidence in me. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he doesn't want that. Yes, I do want that. I want it very much. Then I shall withdraw from the case. Rumpole. You will no doubt withdraw with me. Yeah, I want Mr. Rumpole to stay. When a leading counsel withdraws, his junior naturally does the same. Is there a law about that? It's one of the finest traditions of the great profession of the bar. The finest traditions of our great profession may not be so important as saving Simon's life. Oh, well, if that's what you think, then, then all I can say is... Well, we'd better see the judge. Theobald Jessop was the judge who always ordered crumpets in his club after passing a death sentence. I understand completely. Wisdom that your position has become untenable. Well, you're entitled to withdraw, and Mr. Rumpole, too, of course. Our client wants me to do the case. Really? Uh, then uh, I suppose your client's wishes must be respected. <laughs> My first day alone in court didn't present too many problems. Simon's statement to the police was put in and read. We had the evidence of finding the pistol in the dustbin. And then, when we rose for the day, I took the opportunity of another meeting with Simon and Bonnie Bernard in the interview room down below.
2: When he first joined up, Dad was so excited. He came home on leave in his full uniform, pleased with himself for being made a pilot officer. Me and Mum were proud of Dad, and he seemed proud of himself. But then he started going to the pub all the time, getting drunk. With Peter Benson? With him and Charlie. I think Dad changed his mind about the war. He was miserable because it was a war we couldn't win. He actually told you that? He said the Germans had all the power. He said Hitler didn't really want to conquer the British Empire. We should make peace and let him get on with kicking those Russian communists up the arse. Mm.
0: You weren't meant to talk like that during the war, were you?
2: That's what worried Mum. She told me not to tell anyone at school. She never told her friends. Talking of friends, does the name David Galloway mean anything? He was Dad's navigator, a friend of Peter Benson's. And the only one to die when the plane was shot, then? We thought Dad was dead, too, at the time. In a way, that came as a relief to Mum. It was all over. But then your mother... Shopping in Oxford Street. A stupid buzz bomb got her. Hmm. My Aunt Harriet came over from Chertsey to look after me. Then we heard the news. Dad and Charlie had been picked up by the Allies in France. The war was over. Dad and Charlie came home.
0: And how did he seem to you, your father, when he
2: got back? He was just like he'd been at the start of the war, full of pride and enthusiasm. We didn't hear anything more about making peace with Hitler.
0: Did he tell you what
2: happened in France? He said the plane was shot down and he made a crash landing. He and Charlie got out before it burst into flames. But the navigator didn't. That was a bit vague. He just said he and Charlie got captured by the Germans, went to prison, stayed there till the end of the war. Well, Nearly. They managed to escape and the American 7th Army picked them up, sent them home. So Charlie and your father were both prisoners of war. Did he tell you much about that? Nothing. I don't think he wanted to remember the bad times. He told me about the Luger he found on the dead German soldier near the prison he escaped from, I think.
0: One thing puzzles me just the one your father went through a time when he hated war but then he quarreled with you at the party said you shouldn't have missed that war and you ought to enjoy training for the next one
2: yes he was always saying the war would have made a man of me what did you tell him? Uh, that I hoped it would never happen again and I wanted him to stop talking about it which made him angry? very angry
0: Mr. Whiston wants to see you, sir. Albert Handyside uttered the words I'd been dreading. Come. Ah, ah, there you are. Now, can I offer you a glass of sherry? Uh, Oh, uh, well, thank you. Ah. It can't be pleasant to have to face the possibility of a death sentence. Most upsetting... So, naturally, our client couldn't concentrate, couldn't understand our tactics. Uh, Which were what, exactly? Not to irritate the court and antagonize the jury by challenging evidence we agreed with. Yes, but when you were away and I got the evidence about the entry of the bullets and the separate magazine, our client seemed quite grateful. Your asking those questions may have given you considerable influence over our client. If so... It's up to you to use that influence to help young Simon Gerald. That's what I intend to do. You'll persuade him to see sense? You'll tell him to invite me back to take over the conduct of his defence? In spite of his, well, outrageous behaviour, I'm prepared to forgive and forget. I looked into his eyes and was horribly aware that I could only help Simon or Wisdom. And the choice was inevitable. I mean to get him off. You don't honestly believe he's innocent? What I believe is immaterial. My job is simply to put Simon's case as well as I can. You say your job? Tell the client it's your leader's job. No. I've just had a long talk with Simon. He's got some hope back at last. Are you suggesting that my presence in the case would deprive our client of hope?
2: Ah.
0: Well, this is not conduct I can tolerate from a member of Equity Court. I advise you to start looking for alternative accommodation. Having been turfed out of chambers, I was going through my brief in the tasty bite in Fleet Street as I satisfied myself on fried eggs, sausage, tomatoes and bacon. I had polished off the main part of this strengthening meal When I heard a sharp cry...
1: Rumpole?
0: Hilda brought a cup of coffee to my table and sat down beside me. If you go on eating
1: breakfast like that, do you know what you're going to be in the future?
0: A successful defender of those in trouble with the law?
1: You're going to be fat.
0: I'm going to fight for Simon's life. I need a certain amount of nourishment to do it properly. Whether I become fat in the process is of no concern to me.
1: But it may be of some concern to your wife.
0: I don't have a wife. She gave me the sort of patient smile that said... You have very little idea of what's going on at the moment, and I really can't be bothered to explain. But you'll probably see sense in the end.
1: I've been talking to Daddy.
0: Daddy chucked me out of chambers. It's because of Daddy I've had to prepare my day's work in the Tasty Bite Eatery.
1: Yes, well, I managed to have a word and told him you were doing a difficult case.
0: Didn't he know that already?
1: Do stop talking. I got him to agree you could go on using a small room in chambers while you're doing R.V. Gerald.
0: Daddy take a lot of persuading.
1: He was against it at first, but I managed to wear him down.
0: Oh, did you? Did you really? It wasn't long since I'd purchased three rubber Johnnies, in the hope they'd be of some use after dinner with Daisy Sampson. Sadly, they'd remained in their packets in my wallet that night. Now, I had my wallet open on the table beside me, preparatory to drawing out a ten-bob note towards the Tasty Bites terms for breakfast... As I picked it up, the Rubber Johnnies slipped from their moorings and were exposed to the view of the future she who must be obeyed.
1: Oh, Rumpole, not before it's legal. What? We can't think of that sort of thing just yet, can we?
0: By now my thoughts were on the day in court ahead and I didn't feel I could spare time discussing the illegality of Rubber Johnnies. Uh, No, I suppose not. As I left, Hilda was smiling, in a way that seemed almost triumphant. She had, after all, secured a room for me, at least for the duration of the trial, and so I smiled back. (laughs) Outside the old Palais de Justice, flashes went off from a few cameras, because the newspapers now knew I was defending Simon alone and without a leader. I dived in through the swing doors and took the lift up to the robing room, where various barristers were getting wigs and gowns out of their lockers, fastening winged collars to their studs, tying on crisp white bands. Ah, how are you today, Rumpel? Getting ready to go down with all guns blazing, hmm? dressing up to sink beneath the waves? Can't imagine <laughs> what you mean, Proudfoot. <laughs> like the codger at London Sessions, the fella you were defending... He wanted a couple of years in prison, and you obliged. <laughs> it was as if all the questions and statements and speculation of the last weeks had settled down into one almost credible explanation.
2: And the years. connection
0: between Uncle Cyril's defence and the deaths of Jerry Gerald and tail-end yes. Charlie Best That's it. <laughs> suddenly became clear. Thank you, Proudfoot. I can't tell you how grateful I am. Oh, really? For what? Mr. Dempsey, you were in the same squadron as Jerry Gerald. Did you know him well? Pretty well, yes. And was there a time when he got, shall we say, pessimistic about the war? He had his gloomy times. So gloomy he thought Hitler was bound to win? He said that once or twice, yes. And what did you say to him when he said that to you? I told him to stop talking and get on with the job. Did he ever take your advice? Until his plane was shot down, yes. Until his plane was shot down. Did you see much of Jerry Gerald after the war? We met at a few reunion dinners, that sort of thing. Including the theatre party on the night of the murders... What was the purpose of that party, do you think? My lord, the witness can't possibly know what was in the mind of Mr. Gerald, not least because he's now deceased. Yes, Mr. Rumpel, you have only recently become familiar with the rules of evidence. Apply your knowledge to this case, would you? As your lordship pleases. Mr. Dempsey, at the party, was there a discussion of your wartime experiences? Not as such, no. No. But I did hear Peter Benson discussing prison. Ah, you knew that Peter Benson was a prisoner of war? Of course, yes. He often talked about it. (laughs) And then, on the night of the murders, he proposed a toast to the memory of David Galloway. David Galloway being the navigator who died when the plane caught fire? That's correct, yes. It was all rather peculiar. Peculiar? How? Well, Peter didn't just propose a toast... He also congratulated Jerry and Charlie on their extraordinary luck in getting out of a burning plane without catching fire themselves. Did you yourself raise a glass to David Galloway? Mr. Rumpole? I have allowed a good deal of latitude. The jury, however, may think you are beginning to waste the court's time. On the other hand, my lord, they may be finding the evidence extremely helpful. This is not the time for you to comment on the evidence one way or the other. I'm sorry, my lord. I thought as you were commenting... Mr. Rumpole, one of the lessons you apparently still have to learn is to be careful what you say in the presence of the jury. Careful? If I ever became as careful as C.H. Whiston, you might as well fix the date of the execution now. I didn't, of course, say that. But I thought it as I moved the evidence to safer ground. Uh, Mr Dempsey, when the party got back to the bungalow, had all the others drunk a good deal? I would say so, yes. And when they got Simon out of bed, he poured whiskey for everyone? That's correct, yes. And then there was this talk about killing. I promise you, I'll kill the first of you that touches me. I'm grateful to your lordship for reminding the witness. Mr Dempsey... Did you see young Simon fit the magazine into the gun? Or was he threatening his father with an empty weapon? Well, I suppose it might have been empty, yes. (laughs) Up to this moment, I was enjoying the cross-examination, but I was about to move into a dangerous area and ask questions when I didn't know the answers. Uh, The gun was taken from Simon by... uh, by Peter Benson? I saw that, yes. And did Mr Benson have any difficulty taking it away from him? Not as far as I could see. If there had been a struggle for the gun, would you have seen it? I'm sure that I would have, yes. And after the gun had been removed from Simon, what happened to it? I really couldn't say. Hmm. Did it continue to be a happy party? Not really, no. Jerry Gerald was drinking quite a lot. Ever since Peter Benson proposed the toast to the navigator? To David Galloway, yes. I ordered a taxi. By the time it arrived, only Peter, Jerry and Charlie were left. The atmosphere was most unpleasant. I went to the bathroom and then I heard Peter Benson say something more about David Galloway. Something about surrender. About execution. Execution? I think so, yes. Then Charlie told me my taxi was there. And you never saw Jerry or Charlie again? Never. No. I suppressed a whoop of joy. I even tried not to smile. And when Bonnie Bernard and I went down to the cells, we found Simon, too, in the best of spirits. You got that Martin Dempsey, Mr Rumpole. You really got him. Thank you, Simon. But we should concentrate on the next
2: prosecution witness rather than the last one. Tell us something about Peter Benson. Uh... Well, I always liked him. It was Benson who took the gun away from you? Yes, Mr Bernard. And he did the right thing. I was being stupid. He was one of your father's best friends? He was, until they began to... Well, not quarrel exactly. Disagree. When was that? About a year ago. Peter was talking a lot about David Galloway. Peter said Galloway's family had never been satisfied with the missing-believed-dead story... One of them went to France recently, near the place where the plane came down, and he heard something. Some old rumour from members of the resistance about an English flying officer who'd been found dead, shot near an abandoned plane. Shot, you say? Dad told Peter it couldn't have been David Galloway because he died when the plane caught fire. And did that finish the argument? At the time. But they stopped seeing each other. No longer friends? I think Dad regretted that. And that's why he organized the party. He was very pleased when Peter accepted the invitation. Can you remember what Peter was wearing that night? Uh, um, an overcoat, I think. Hmm. What sort of overcoat? Long. Dark. I, I remember he kept
0: it on indoors. Said so the bungalow was cold. Except it wasn't. And with that odd little morsel on which to chew, Bonnie, Bernard and I climbed from the cells to the entrance hall.
2: Any more jobs for me, Mr Rumpel? Nothing else to make inquiries about? I don't think so, Bonnie.
0: We're about as ready as we're ever likely to be. Right you are. See you tomorrow, then.
1: Well done, Horace. You were going great guns this afternoon.
0: Were you there, Daisy?
1: In the back of the court. I had an hour to kill, so I squeezed in.
0: To see your friend Reggie Proudfoot?
1: No, to see you, Horace. You're on your feet all the time.
0: Well, I am alone and without a leader.
1: So I bet you've got some devastating stuff to throw at Reggie's star witness. Who's that? Peter Benson.
0: Do you want to know what I've got to throw at him?
1: (laughs) Only if you want to tell me, Horace.
0: Or does Reggie Proudfoot want me to tell you?
1: To be absolutely honest, I've hardly discussed your case with Reggie.
0: Despite my inexperience, I had been at the bar long enough to know that the words, to be absolutely honest are usually followed by a thumping lie. Tell Reggie he'll just have to wait and see. I left the old Bailey alone and went down to Pomeroy's, where I bought myself a solitary Chateau Thames embankment. As I drank it, I thought again of the moment in the robing room when Reggie Proudfoot had mocked my defence in the Timpson case. What was the connection between Jerry Gerald and Uncle Cyril? Did Jerry have anything in common with a petty thief from South London who preferred to plead guilty to a crime he didn't commit? Did they both think, albeit in different circumstances, that prison was sometimes the safest place to be? This thought had survived the evidence of Martin Dempsey. Whether it would survive the evidence of Peter Benson, I was about to discover. Ex-Pilot Officer Peter Benson Answered the prosecution's questions quietly but clearly. No doubt conscious of it being Friday afternoon, and knowing the lure of his lordship's pigs in Berkshire, Reggie Proudfoot took Benson quickly through his evidence, so sooner than I had expected, I was on my feet. Mr. Benson, did you like Jerry Gerald? We knew each other for quite a long time. Do you remember when he turned against the war? I'm not sure what you mean. I mean when he said Hitler was bound to win. You do remember that? I remember him saying something like that. And did he say that we ought to make peace with Hitler and leave him to fight the Russians? I think he probably did. And was that about the time his plane is said to have crashed somewhere over France? Around about then. sir. I ask you again... Did you like Jerry Gerald? Mm, I didn't like what he said. I didn't agree with it. Mr. Rumpole, I have allowed a good deal of latitude. The Lord Counsel for the Prosecution told the jury that Jerry Gerald was a war hero. I'm entitled to put it to the witness that he was perhaps not such a hero as all that. Whatever degree of heroism he attained, he didn't deserve to be shot. That's a question I intend to discuss with the witness in due course. Oh, very well. But you may learn in the fullness of time that the most effective cross-examinations are those that are kept brief. <laughs> We'd finish more quickly, my lord, if you let me get on with it. I didn't, of course, say that. I merely turned to another subject. Mr Benson, you knew David Galloway, the navigator? He was my closest friend. Until he died in the burning plane? Uh, yes, until he was killed. Until he was killed? To keep his memory alive, you proposed a toast in the bar of the Café Royal after visiting the Palladium? I did. Did you congratulate Jerry, Gerald and Charlie Best on their extraordinary good luck in escaping from a burning aeroplane without getting burned? I may have said something along those lines. You never believed the story of the plane crash, did you? I don't know what you mean. I, too, would welcome some clarification. Certainly, my lord. This was the situation. Jerry Gerald thought we would lose the war and persuaded Charlie Best to share his opinions. I remembered Cyril Timpson again. Uncle Cyril sought protection from a criminal rival by pleading guilty to a burglary that never happened. So they decided that prison was the only safe place for them. Do you mean an English prison? No, my lord, a German prison. Or perhaps, Mr Benson, they intended to bring down their plane and hand it over to the enemy. Was that their plan? How was I to know what they planned? We were told their plane was lost and they were all missing. That was all we heard. Until after the war? Yes, until Jerry
2: came back to England. And what did he tell you? That David Galloway had been caught in the burning
0: plane. Did you believe him? That was what he told us. But weren't you suspicious? Galloway's family had heard something about an officer found shot dead near an abandoned plane. You didn't believe Jerry's story, and you argued with him, yes? There were things about his story that puzzled me, perhaps. Did it occur to you that David Galloway might have been killed because he wouldn't agree to the surrender? What surrender? The surrender to the Germans of Jerry and Charlie... You had your suspicions and you kept close to Jerry because you wanted to find out the truth. I, I, I thought there were questions still to be answered. Questions still to be answered. Members of the jury. So, now we have reached the events in the bungalow after the theatre. I'm sure we're all extremely grateful for that. You kept your overcoat on, Mr Benson, until you left the bungalow, and you were the last to leave. I feel the cold. I haven't been well lately. Anyway, I thought I wouldn't stay all that long. But things got dramatic, so you did stay. What did you think of young Simon being baited for not taking part in the war, for funking his national service? I didn't like it. I didn't join in. A very brave of you with your unanswered questions about Jerry's crashed plane. Didn't you think it a bit rich that he attacked his son for not fighting in a war? I may have thought that. But you didn't say so. No. On the night of the murders, we've heard that some of the guests at the party threatened to remove Simon's trousers... And he picked up the Luger pistol. And told his father he'd use it to kill him. But you were the one who got him to give up the gun? I was. Did he resist you? At first, but not for long. The witnesses all say he let go of the gun without any resistance at all. And they all say that they didn't see him put the magazine in the gun. Did you see that? I I
2: can't remember him touching the magazine,
0: So we can agree that he may have been pointing an empty gun. Well, perhaps he was at the time. The things may have been different later. Oh, yes, they were. Entirely different. Every witness called by the prosecution has said that they couldn't remember you putting the gun back on the mantelpiece after Simon had gone to his room. Of course I put it back. Nobody saw you do it. Because it went straight into your overcoat pocket together with the magazine which you collected when the drinks began to flow again and nobody was looking. Why, ever would I want to take the gun away with me? Because you believe that two pilot officers surrendered their plane and themselves to the enemy. What would have been the penalty if that sort of conduct had been discovered during the war? The penalty for treason. I suppose, possibly death. And you were sure those two men had killed your friend David Galloway? You saw the perfect opportunity to do justice. You knew Simon would be the number one suspect if his father was shot that night, having threatened him with a gun. So you returned an hour later to execute both of the officers, and when you'd done all that... All you had to do was wipe the gun and the magazine free of fingerprints and leave them in the Gerald's dustbin as further evidence against the young man who may have to pay with his life for the crimes you committed. That's not true. None of that's true. Lies. From start to finish, stupid lies. No further questions. Yes, thank you, Mr. Rumpole. Mr. Proudfoot, I've been looking at the clock. I expect you may have a number of questions to ask in re-examination. Oh, I have, my lord. Then I suggest we adjourn now, as it's Friday and quite late in the afternoon, yes? And will Mr. Benson be available to deal with your questions on Monday morning? My lord, indeed he will. Mr. Rumpole, in view of the serious charges you've made against this witness, do you agree to the course I have suggested? I knew that whatever I said wouldn't make the slightest difference to his lordship's decision. So Mr. Rumpole agrees. As your lordship pleases. With unexpected results. <laughs> After the longest weekend of my life, I found myself walking up to the bar mess on the top floor of the old baby. Ah, sit down, Rumpo. Coffee? Thank you, Bradford. You know, your cross-examination of Peter Benson was so effective that the witness in question has gone absent without leave. Oh, I'm sure you'll find him. Well, I'm not so sure. The police have been round to his flat, locked up and empty. We went back to court number one, and further facts emerged, one of them being that Peter Benson had removed a large amount of cash from his bank on the day he gave evidence, as though he was already considering the possibility of flight before he entered the witness box. Could we have another adjournment pending further inquiries, Malone? Oh, it is intolerable for my client to be kept waiting for his fate to be decided because a prosecution witness can no longer face the court. Rather to my surprise, oh. the judge agreed with me. Very well, Mr Rumpole. So Thank I you. called the accused, who professed his innocence. Reggie Proudfoot made the most of the fact that Simon didn't call the police or a doctor when he found his father dead in his chair. If our case was no better after Simon left the witness box, at least it was no worse. Members of the jury, I don't have to prove my case against Peter Benson. He has chosen to run away from this court, and that fact may persuade you that he has something to hide. The question you have to ask yourselves is that, given all this evidence, including the fact that he was the last person to be seen with the gun is it possible that Mr Benson committed the Penge bungalow murders? If you come to the conclusion that he is, perhaps, the murderer, then you can't be sure of Simon Gerald's guilt, and it will be your duty to return a verdict of not guilty. I sat down and felt, as I have since, in so many cases, an extraordinary sense of relief. I had done all I could for Simon and my job was over. Now it was for the jury to decide. Have
2: I got a chance, Mr.
0: Rumpole? The judge's summing up was very fair. You... You do have a chance. Bonnie Bernard and I sat in the canteen, our stomachs awash with coffee and our fears growing. The jury had been out nearly three hours. Then, as now, a prolonged retirement was not good news for the defence. At very long last, The message came. The jury was coming back to court number one with a verdict. Simon was brought up from the cells and sat between the dock officers, staring at his hands as though afraid to look up. Hilda smiled down at me from the public gallery and raised her thumbs as a sign of encouragement. And then an extraordinary thing happened. Hilda's daddy... Wigged and gowned as though he'd been fighting the case... ...slid into the seat in front of me... ...just as the jury came clattering back into their places. The clerk of the court rose to ask the final questions. Would the foreman please stand? Have you reached a verdict on which you are all agreed? We have. And do you find Simon Gerald guilty... ...or not guilty of willful murder? Not guilty... I don't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Neither could Simon, who was looking round the court in amazement. The press benches emptied as the reporters ran out to queue for the telephones. And then, to my further amazement, C.H. Whiston rose and addressed the judge. May my client be released, my lord. He spoke with great authority, as though he had pulled off a remarkable triumph. Certainly, Mr. Whiston. The judge had spoken. And my part in the Pinch bungalow trial was over.
1: Uh, excuse me, sir. This way, Mr. Gerald.
2: Mr. Rumpole, how can I ever thank
0: you? No need. Absolutely no need at all.
1: Well done, Rumpole. Well done indeed. Are you walking back to chambers? I know Daddy wants a serious word with you.
0: Hilda and I walked from Ludgate Circus up to the temple... I was bursting with pride, ready to sink a whole bottle of Chateau Thames embankment in Pomeroy's. A serious talk with Hilda's daddy in his room in Chambers seemed a poor sort of celebration.
1: Don't worry about it. It's just one of those formalities we have to go through.
0: It was Hilda's use of the word we that I found a little confusing. She peeled off at the entrance to Equity Court. Best of luck! (laughs)
2: a good win, Mr. Rumpole. A truly remarkable win. Ah,
0: thank you. I must, I must As say... As a I... clerk with some thirty years in the temple, can I advise you not to boast? I have to confess I was disappointed. Uh, oh, well, I... I had been looking forward to a good many years of boasting. When you see Mr. Whiston, try not to exaggerate the part you played in the case. Can you exaggerate the part played by Hamlet, Prince of Denmark? He's not just a spear carrier, is he? I don't think your fine, Mr. Whiston, has any great interest in Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. I was about to discover that Albert was absolutely right. But my interview with C.H. Whiston took a course which came as a complete surprise. I must say, you were a considerable help to Simon. Yes, you might even say I saved his life. I mean, you were a considerable help to me. As you know, I had other commitments which prevented me from leading. Other commitments? I thought you were sacked for useless inactivity quite early in the proceedings. Was what I didn't say? Oh, of course, yes. Other commitments. Was what I did say. I ought to point out, however, that your cross-examination of the chief prosecution witness invited criticism. To accuse a witness of murder and what seemed to be pretty slender evidence is not in the finest traditions of the bar. It's not the sort of thing a leading barrister would do. It did, however, cause the chief prosecution witness to do a runner. Do a runner? Really, Rumpel, your language has been infected by the criminal practice you seem determined to pursue. Uh, Would you prefer he melted into air, into thin air, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, left not a rack behind? Well, yes, I suppose that's a little better. Um, Keats? Shakespeare, the tempest. There is something else we have to discuss. I've just had a long conversation with Hilda. Of course, I've known all about this for a long time. All about what? Oh, it seems you two reached an agreement over breakfast in a cafe in Fleet Street. The Tasty Bite? Is it? I wouldn't know. You say we reached an agreement? You agreed that any sort of familiarity between you and my daughter should be postponed until you were legally married, which was a correct and proper decision. Married? Did you say married? Well, of course. What else could you have been discussing? Now, my daughter is strong-minded and persuasive. You may well find in what I hope will turn out to be a happy future for both of you that when Hilda has made up her mind to such and such a thing... It usually happens.
2: Yes, I imagine that
0: might be so. It is so, Rumpel. In addition, Hilda has persuaded me that you should remain with us here at Equity Court as a member of the family. And now, dear boy, to celebrate our entirely new relationship, a glass of sherry? My heart sank as he approached the dusty decanter. This again was an offer I felt I could not decently refuse. Your father seemed to be discussing marriage. My marriage to you?
1: Of course to me. I shouldn't think Daisy Sampson's particularly keen.
2: No, I don't suppose she is.
1: Then you did well to propose. R- remind me, exactly when did I propose? When we were having breakfast. You told me we shouldn't use those things, mm. those rubber whats-its, mm. until we were married. And I understood exactly what you meant. Mm. I gave it a lot of serious thought. I realised you're young and inexperienced and you could probably be quite irritating. Oh, uh... But then I remembered all the time and trouble I'd invested
0: Time and trouble.
1: Who got the junior brief for you in R.V. Gerald? Who praised your talent for cross-examination? Who told Daddy to keep you in chambers?
0: I was still in a high mood after Simon's acquittal. Hilda was quite right. She had offered support all along, and she was unaccountably anxious to spend her life with me. There seemed no particular reason why a brave new world shouldn't have a marriage in it.
1: Well, Rumpole, tell me what you think.
0: I think we might as well get married. Was what I didn't say it. Well, yes, Hilda. Of course. Was what I did say.
1: Oh, Rumpole, I'm sure I can make something of you. Oh. And with that,
0: she threw her arms around me <laughs> and gave me the sort of approving but not yet sensual kiss of those who were now officially engaged. Oh, for a beaker full
2: of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene with beaded bubbles winking at the brim. Sorry, Mr. Rumpole. Did you want another drink or not? Oh, I really mean, ought to be heading home. Roy right, well, then.
0: But perhaps one final glass of Chateau Thames embankment ah. before my evening with Hilda. She who must be obeyed. What'd you call her that? Why? Well, it's a translation of the Arabic phrase used to describe Aisha, the Queen of Death, the white goddess of the lost city. Of...
2: I'll be right with you, miss. Uh, sorry, Mr Rumpole. Mm. Oh, it's a long story and you're busy. Suffice it to say, my wife is a woman who expected me to do as I was told, even before we became engaged. I know the sort.
0: Hmm. Yes, miss. What can I get you? Ah. <sighs> All tragedies are finished by a death. All comedies are ended by a marriage. Cheers. In part two of Rumpole and the Pinch Bungalow Murders by John Mortimer, The elder Horace Rumpole was played by me, Timothy West. And the younger Horace Rumpole was Benedict Cumberbatch. Dr. Fillimore was played by Carl Johnson. Lord Jessop, David Shaw Parker. C.H. Whiston, Geoffrey Whitehead. And Hilda Whiston was Jasmine Hyde. Simon Gerald was Ewan Bailey. Bonnie Bernard, Matthew Morgan. Reggie Proudfoot was Stephen Critchlow. Daisy Emma Fielding, and Peter Benson was Andy de la Tour. Rumpole and the Penge Bungalow Murders was written by John Mortimer, adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Imrie, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.
1: And the music for the Rumple series is arranged and played by Julie Hodge and the quartet Sax.